I'm Rick Herman, uh, the director here at the Mershon Center. I'm very, well, very anxious and happy to welcome all of you here. And I'm very happy to be introducing uh, Saad Ibrahim. Uh, we invited Saad to come to a conference that Bill Little organized in Jakarta two years ago, Bill, I think. And he couldn't. He was otherwise detained <laughs> in prison. So in many ways, this is our rain check promise uh, that we would get him to Ohio one way or another. And I want to thank Catherine Meyer, who played the absolutely instrumental role in making this happen, and uh, the collaboration between the Mershon Center and the Sociology Department, and Alam Payen, the director of the Middle East Studies Center, who I think are the three main players, but uh, an honors program uh, as well, who, who have made this uh, possible. And I know Catherine worked uh, night and day to see this through, so I appreciate your work, Catherine. Sadid Ibn Ibrahim uh, founded the Ibn Khaldun Center in the late 1980s. Uh, he, at the time, was deeply engaged in the study of Islam in Egypt, particularly armed Islamic groups uh, that at the time uh, were carrying on a variety of violent acts against the regime. I remember first meeting him and visiting the uh, Ibn Khaldun Center, I think, in 1991, because uh, I was interested in similar subjects. And last saw him, I guess, we shared a plane ride to Oman together uh, uh, just shortly before he was arrested. In 2001, he was arrested uh, for a variety of uh, things, according to the government. But one that he explained to me is that he had begun to talk about and then wrote uh, on secession in Arab uh, regimes, and in particular, the dynastic quality that was emerging in secession in modern Arab succession, you know, succession in modern Arab regimes, and had uh, been pushed by a, a common friend of ours, actually a Lebanese Frenchman, to uh, bring this into focus in Egypt, and that was something the current regime in Egypt wasn't enthusiastic about seeing discussed uh, very publicly. Uh, he was released uh, a year, just this past year. He's won awards uh, from the American Sociological Society, the American Society for the Advancement of Science. He has his PhD uh, from the University of Washington uh, and is a frequent before his arrest visitor to the United States and is one of, I suspect, not one of, maybe the most prominent voice in favor of human rights and democracy in Egypt today. So it's a great pleasure and a lot of honor to welcome a friend to Mershan, Fadid and Ibrahim. Good afternoon. <coughs> Thank you very much, Sheikh, for your warm introduction. <coughs> and thank you all for being here to share this with me. I'd like to recognize also Catherine Meyer for her effort to bring me here, <coughs> and to all the other friends that I didn't know were involved, but <laughs> behind the scene working for it. And as Rick said, this is <coughs> a rain check. I received that invitation to attend their conference in Jakarta and uh, <coughs> my wife brought it, brought all the kind of invitation I received while I was in, <coughs> in prison and it, uh, you cannot imagine how much it really means to a prisoner of conscience to receive letters from people that he had known 
at one time or another, and also to be thought of on occasions like this important conference in Jakarta. <coughs> the, <coughs> the experience in prison, and I don't wish it on anyone, but the, there's always positive side to everything. <coughs> and as an activist, I always look at the positive side of things. <coughs> and one of the positive things that happened during this long battle, I was actually arrested in the year 2000, June 30th, 2000, middle of the night. My house was surrounded <coughs> by some 20 armored cars and 200 soldiers to arrest an ailing 62 years old man, unarmed, a sociologist, harmless. And when I was ushered out of the house and I saw this siege, which is enough expression force to probably pacify or to conquer a city like uh, Columbus. <laughs> I recognized after the, I absorbed the shock and I was ushered in in one of these armored cars and there were about <coughs> two cars ahead and two cars behind, probably the longest motorcade that I ever seen in my life. <coughs> you reflect after the first few minutes, you reflect on the whole scene. <coughs> And I recognized at the time, at least in a very vague way, <coughs> of how insecure the regime is. So here I was, under arrest, and yet feeling a tinge of sorrow for the regime, for having to send 200 soldiers with 20 armored cars to arrest one man, unarmed man, but never been implicated in violence, never advocated violence. <coughs> and that is really the entry to thinking and to introducing the subject that I'm going to talk about today. <coughs> Could the Arab world be democratized? This is the question that has been on everybody's agenda shortly after 9-11. It has been on my agenda for 30 years, but it is a newcomer to the American agenda and to the Western European agenda. And of course, I believe, and many of secular liberal Egyptians and Arabs believe that yes, the Arab world not only could be could democratize, but it must democratize. <coughs> not only for the sake of the Arabs, not only for the sake of the Muslims, but also for the sake of Americans. Why for the sake of Americans? Because in a very brief sketch, I tell you that the Arab world, representing only 7% of the world population has appropriated 35% of the 
of all armed conflicts since 1945. I know that the Martian Center is interesting questions of security, but I wonder if you have thought of that, how much the Middle East, with only 7% of the world population, has appropriation. It's a notorious honor, we're not proud of it, but it is. 35% of all armed conflicts took place in the Middle East. <coughs> but the other frightening statistics is that Americans have been involved in 10 armed interventions on those 55 years. That is on the average of once every five, six, seven years. So there is always American blood spilled. There are, of course, more Arab and Middle Eastern blood spilled in the process. And when again you think about it, you say, well, the Middle East, the Arab world, seem to be also notorious, not only on the excessive use of armed conflicts, the excessive presence of armed conflicts, but also in the deficit on democracy. So you have two things, surplus of violence and shortage of democracy. And these two could not have been accidental. The correlation could not have been accidental. And that is the second point I want to make, is that so long as there is a democratic deficit, in the Middle East, there will be more armed conflict, and with every round of armed conflict, it gets more and more dangerous, more firepower, more destruction, more bloodshed. And with the capability somewhere of producing armed arms of mass destruction, and, you know, some of it could now be manufactured, as you all know, in relatively limited space and with limited resources, the specter of danger to mankind is even the greater. And therefore, we have to <coughs> think together of how to institute democracy in this part of the world. It is one region in the world that has been lagging behind in democratizing. As you all know, students of the subject, and you are all well versed on this, I don't need to reiterate it, <coughs> that since 1974, since the change of regime in Portugal, political scientists, political sociologists have noted that there is what is now called the third wave of democracy. That third wave <coughs> has engulfed more than a hundred countries in the last 25 years. <coughs> However, the wave seems to always break on the Arab shore or the Middle Eastern shore. And the question is, is that inevitable? Is that a uh, 
something that we'll have to just watch and deliberate, watch and lament, or do something about it. <clears throat> and again, as an activist, I am one of those who believe that we have to do something about it. I noted in a written article that will be published soon that the Arab world, more generally the Middle East, including Iran and Turkey, have gone through five phases in the last 200 years. Five successive legacies in the last 200 years, well, the last 200 years, <coughs> because the modern history, for the Arabs at least, for Egypt and the Arab world, <coughs> seem to be now punctuated with the arrival of the French expedition back in 1798. On those 200 years, so many waters went under the Middle Eastern bridges, but let me just count as headings without going into the details because I want to save time for discussion. <coughs> that was the start of the first colonial legacy in the Middle East. A colonial legacy that started with Napoleon, with the French, but continued throughout the 19th century <coughs> with different actors in different countries, the French, the Italians, the Spaniards, and of course, when we come to the 20th century, the second colonial legacy, Americans will be added. <coughs> but that legacy left a mixture, like all legacies, positive and negative effects or impacts on the Arabs and on the Middle East. <coughs> One of the positive impacts was the start of what I call the liberal age. A liberal age that began <coughs> very sluggishly, very slowly, but it began as a result of some Arab modernizers like Muhammad Ali, like Dawood Basha, like Khiriddin Ptonussi, all of these names in different Arab countries, seeing the encroaching West, the advance and the progress of the West, and were resisting to the best of their ability and ultimately being overcome. They recognized that they have to modernize. And one of the early acts of these Arab modernizers, especially in Egypt, like in the name of Muhammad Ali, Dawood Basha in Iraq, Khiriddin in Tunis, <coughs> and others in Lebanon, by sending the youngest and the brightest students from the respective countries to study in Europe. And as these students went, acquired modern science, modern technology, got introduced to the humanities, learned more about the Enlightenment, about revolutions, they came back and they started introducing some of these new ideas, some of these new concepts, some of these new practices. <coughs> so from the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century, you may say there was an ongoing liberal age, at least in terms of ideas, in terms of arts, in terms of humanities, in terms of uh, plays, motion, motion picture, 
and new art forms, things that did not exist before the 19th that liberal age was also had its own political dimension, demand, requests, pressure for constitutionalism, for democracy. In some countries it succeeded, in some countries it was foiled, aborted, but these liberal ideas, both in the very broad sense and also both culturally, socially, but also the political sense of demanding power sharing and demanding democratic governance continued for a whole century. And in countries like Egypt, Iran, Turkey, it produced a democracy of sorts. And I say democracy of sorts because it wasn't a perfect democracy. It wasn't Westminster democracy. But it definitely was more representative electoral politics than anything that we had seen before and was more representative than anything that we saw afterwards. That liberal democracy in a number of countries also came to an abrupt end <coughs> by when the State of Israel was created and when the several Arab armies saw the first defeat in 1914. And that ushered in a series of coup d'etat, starting in Syria, <coughs> very quickly in Egypt, and then in Iraq, and then in Libya, and then in the rest of the Arab world. We get into the third legacy, so from a colonial legacy to a liberal legacy, to what we call radical populist legacy. Military regimes that came to power, scapegoating the civilian liberal governments for the defeat in Palestine, and avowing revenge and the liberation of Palestine and promising everything under the sun. Social justice, rapid economic development, cultural authenticity, <coughs> positive neutrality, all the slogans of the 50s and the 60s. This is, for the lack of a better word, is what I termed in my writing as a populist social contract a published social contract that replaced the liberal social contract of a century of the, the century that began in the middle of the 19th to the middle of the 20th. So we have now a liberal, uh, radical populist social contract symbolized by Nasser in Egypt, but very quickly emulated elsewhere in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, in Sudan, uh, <coughs> and the rest of the Middle East. Again, the populist, radical social contract lasted for nearly 20 years, and then another defeat at the hands of the Israelis in 1967. Cast doubt on the populist, radical social contract. The radical regimes, however, discredited, defeated, on the battlefield, yet in terms of <coughs> police power, in terms of technology of coercion, have learned quite a bit, and therefore they stayed in power despite eroding legitimacy, despite defeat, they were had tremendous repressive power 
that they were able to stay in power despite this eroding legitimacy. <coughs> However, because of the vacuum created by eroding legitimacy on one hand and yet hanging on to the reins of power, Islamic an Islamic legacy began to build up. And this would be number four, the Islamic legacy. And in countries like Iran, in countries like Sudan, and almost in Algeria, the advocates of Islamic legacy were able to seize power, either through a coup d'etat or through a popular revolution. And of course, Afghanistan was part of that as well. So you have Afghanistan, Iran, Sudan. Somewhere, Algeria in the middle, Tunisia, Egypt, were all challenged by the advocates of an Islamic legacy, saying, well, we tried liberalism, we tried populism, radical populism, it did not work, let us give a chance to Islam. And they were finding many listeners. Advocates of that Islamic legacy were really <coughs> getting more and more popular, was expanding constituency, especially of the young, educated, but alienated Arabs, Muslims, Middle Eastern. Nine <coughs> eleven. The drama of 9-11 has many ramifications, some of which you know very well, I don't need to talk about that, but it has also ramifications for that Islamic legacy, this coming fourth Islamic legacy. <coughs> one is that the regime in Afghanistan, one of the regimes, was <coughs> the Taliban regime, was discredited, was among its own people in the Muslim world, but also <coughs> defeated militarily by coalition forces led by the United States. <coughs> and while many Muslims did not like that, that an alien power brings down a, a regime in a Muslim country, yet there was a sigh of relief among many, not only in Afghanistan, but also in the world. Something similar happened also with one of the remnants of the populist radical regimes, that is Safarazi, who is universally disliked in the Arab and Muslim world, and many people had a sigh of relief when he, his regime fell, Although if you talk to Middle Easterners, to Muslims, to Arabs, they would give you a very ambivalent reaction. Happy that the regime fell, <coughs> but unhappy that it occurred at the hands of, a, of alien Western powers. Because the coming of alien Western powers reminds Middle Easterners of that first legacy, the colonial legacy, as if the colonialists are coming back. 
So there's a lot of mixed feeling over this. <coughs> and you could understand with this quick background that I gave you. <coughs> all right, where is democracy in all of this? <coughs> I argue in my writing that liberal secularists like the Islamists after the defeat of the radical populists began also to raise their voices and to call for democracy. They are too weak to seize power. But, but <coughs> quite morally and politically credible that their constituency is growing all the time. And the important and the new thing that's happening, especially after 9-11, <coughs> is that many of the anti-democratic Islamic elements after 9-11 began to revise their whole package of ideological and practical underpinnings. And I saw that firsthand in prison. 9-11 occurred in the middle of my prison terms. <coughs> The hour 9-11 took place was around 4, four o'clock in the afternoon, Cairo time. <coughs> and even though I was in solitary condition, solitary confinement, the uh, cell door opened and I was rushed out, taken to the officer's headquarters in the administration building of the prison, not knowing why, in this very peculiar hour, they will take me out. I asked the guards, why are you taking me? He said, I don't know. The guards didn't know why they were taking me. When I arrived at the <coughs> officer's quarter, I saw the television on, CNN. And what seemed to have happened is that the Egyptian television, not having anybody in the scene, just hooked up with CNN, and began to televise what was happening in there. And it's all in English. And the officer's English leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> so they needed a cultural agent, double agent. <laughs> so I was, somebody thought, well, bring that prisoner out. <laughs> Let him find out what's happening. So I arrived on the scene. I was stunned by what I saw. I began to translate to the officers, try to make sense out of this madness that I was seeing on television, try to make sense for myself and for them, because also for the officers, they couldn't comprehend what was happening. probably about 30 minutes in this unfolding drama, all of a sudden I remembered 
that my wife is in New York and that her office where she will be is only about three blocks away from the twin towers of the world trade and that my daughter <laughs> was flying from Cairo to New York to join with her mother that very day and also to receive one more award, the Human Rights Award from the MISA, the Middle East Studies Association. <clears throat> so here, in prison, watching this on television, knowing that my wife is in New York, within two or three blocks from the scene of the disaster, and my daughter is flying to New York. So here is a global drama mixed with a personal drama. And here I was in prison. And for a very... So I start, tears began to come to my eyes. <clears throat> and the officer didn't know. Of course, I had no idea that my wife was in New York or that my daughter was flying. <clears throat> so they start comforting me. That, you know, they are also very moved they're also very sad for the victims of 9-11. And they returned me back to my cell. It was a sleepless night, thinking of all of this, trying to just connect all of these threads in this very solitary cell. The following few days, the Islamicist in prison sent me one more message. They have been sending me messages from my second day in prison, even though I was, I was telling Greg the story, even though I was in solitary, nobody was supposed to communicate with me. But the Islamicists in prison, they can get to the Twin Towers, they can get to myself. <coughs> so they, have, they found ways of sending me written messages. Of course, there's a different group not exactly the Taliban or the Qaeda group, <coughs> but it shows their extensive and their skillful ways of doing things. I was telling Greg that out of the 500 prisoners with me, 300 were Islamic activists. That is to say, two-thirds of the prison population were Islamists. And there were three different groups of Islamists. One of them was the Muslim Brothers, that was the oldest Islamic organization. And then another one was the Jama'a Islamiyya. And the third one was the Jihad organization. The people who later on joined Al-Qaeda were from the Jihad. You hear a name of Zawahiri, Ayman Zawahiri, almost like a twin name with bin Laden. Ayman Zawahiri was from the Jihad group. So his colleagues were in prison. Some of the people in the Jihad have been to Afghanistan and back and were arrested when they arrived back in Egypt. And these are called the Afghani Arabs. And were tried and ended up in prison. 
So I get a message, second or third days after 9-11, asking of whom I thought was behind 9-11. They have all learned about it. News spread in prisons almost innocently. So by the second or the third or second day, nearly everybody knew so much about what happened the day before in New York. And many of them were very curious of what I thought was behind it. So I gave them my opinion that I thought Bin Laden and his group were behind it. That was my first gut feeling. But the second guess, I made three guesses, was people who were involved in the Waco, Texas, episode because two of the people McVeigh or whatever had just been executed a few days earlier and I thought there is a chance that some of his associates were behind it and the third guess was these were probably Serbian elements who were very antagonistic and hostile to the United States because of the use of American firepower, of air power, in subduing them in Kosovo. However, as it turned out, I think it was my first guess that were born out. But anyhow, that along with other things, we <coughs> started a debate for what if, if your guess, that Islamic elements from Al-Qaeda, from Taliban, are behind it, what would that do to Islam? They were very concerned about the image of Islam. Disastrous. It will give Islam a very bad name. It already has shady name in the West. If this proved to be the work of Islamists, it would be even worse. In the communication back and forth, and especially after the, <coughs> the United States starts bombing Taliban in Afghanistan, they asked me curiously, do you think the Americans will bomb cell block number two, three, and four in the Torah prison where I was. <laughs> they were hearing in the accounts how accurate and precision bombing this. And since these three cell blocks in the Torah prison had a lot of Islamists, the 300 Islamists, 100 each, they became a bet word that after Americans finish in Afghanistan and with all the <coughs> vowing by Mr. Bush that he will pursue terrorists everywhere in the world in the war of terrorists, they were curious of whether this is a lucky Well, partly to assure them, partly to assure myself, 
I said no, it's very unlikely. So long as so long I am in prison. Being a dual citizen <laughs> and in one of the civil laws there were three Britishers implicated again in one of the Islamic uh, activist cases. So I said no, it's unlikely. Partly because I'm here, partly because of the three Britishers and <coughs> Americans may save that to the very end, and if ever. So anyhow, that was one of the interesting side uh, anecdotes, my person. But more interesting is that this initiation of dialogue, and they're concerned about the image of Islam, and their image, started a very serious dialogue. They said, you know, how come the whole world raised so much fuss about your case and did not give a damn about ours, even though some of us have been tortured, some of us have died as a result of torture? So we began to say, well, I don't know exactly what the world, why the world is raising so much protest <coughs> on my behalf. I am grateful that this is happening. My guess is that I am perceived in many of the democratic countries as sharing some of their core values, freedom, democracy, pluralism, tolerance, equality, gender equality, and you are not. You don't share these values. So they wrote back, but we share these values. Not all of them, many of these values we also share writing back to them. Well, if you share these values, you have failed to communicate that to the outside world. How can we communicate it to the outside world? So I gave them a list of things that they have to do. One of, one of these things is to revise in their own writings and to disavow the use of violence to disavow terrorism, to declare unequivocally where they stand on the issue of democracy, on the issue of or attitudes toward non-Muslims, on the issue of women, and so on. So they began very serious revision, and they said, and they sent me everything they wrote, and it was fine. Could you find a way to smuggle those out of prison and to get them printed in the name of your different organizations? And they did. So there are three volumes that came out toward the end of my <coughs> incarceration, written by Islamicists in prison, in which they seriously re-examined their previous ideas and concepts and convictions and made a commitment that is very clear to the values of pluralism, of democracy that they call shura, never mind the different names they used, but they made that very clear. And then, 
they repented. Some of them who have been committed, who have committed violence and were condem condemned for it, they publicly apologized for it. And one of the groups that wanted to apologize went to the other extreme. Not only repenting their use of violence, but also <laughs> makes me laugh because one of this, as I said, said all right, some of the uh, one of the groups that were implicated in assassinating President Sadat. Do you remember President Sadat of Egypt? <laughs> and they were still serving. Some of them were executed, but the majority were serving life in prison. <laughs> So not only did they repent, but they want to declare Sadat a martyr, a saint. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> People are suspicious whether you are really serious in this change of mind and change of heart. If you go all the way from having killed a man to declaring him a saint, even the Pope, have a hard time declaring uh, <laughs> Sister <laughs> Sister Teresa still has to do a lot of work before he makes her officially a saint. <laughs> so tone it down. You don't it's enough at this stage to apologize for having killed him. But don't you know overdo it. Otherwise you undermine your own credit. So they they listen. Anyhow, when I came out of prison, their colleagues outside got in touch with me. As it turned out, they were updated, continuously briefed about what was going on in prison. So they asked if they can continue the dialogue. One. Two, if they can get in touch with Western diplomats in order to show that they really have changed, to revamp their image with the West. I said, you want to talk to the infidels, the Westerners? They said, oh, never mind, infidels. They are people of the book anyhow. And this is where they always have a formula to justify political action. So the infidels, all of a sudden, for the purpose of dialogue, became people of the book. For those of you who don't know this, but you know, in Islam, all the followers of monotheistic religions are termed in our literature, in our heritage, as people of the book, meaning that they had a divine book like the Quran, the Bible, the Old Testament, and therefore they are referred to as people of the book. So when I said, you want to talk to the infidels? I said, no, no, these are not infidels, these are people of the book. <coughs> So the Canadian ambassador in Cairo was an avid visitor to prison. And he had learned from during his visits to me that I had this dialogue with the Islamists in prison. So he asked one time if he can dialogue with them in prison. The Egyptian authorities denied the request. So when I was acquitted and I was outside, and some of the Islamic leaders outside prison asked if they can dialogue with the West through the diplomats, the diplomatic missions in Cairo. 
I conveyed that to the American, to the Canadian ambassador who was very interested, and he in turn communicated it to some of the other Europeans. And not very long after I was acquitted, we organized the Swiss hosting a one-day, a day-long dialogue between Western diplomats from five Western countries and seven leaders representing the range of Islamic groups. And again, issues about pluralism, about democracy, about non-Muslims, about the Sharia, about their commitment. Should there be? Because this is a question that will always come. Should you have a free and fair elections in Muslim countries? And should you win? Would you respect the rules of the game? Would you have elections? Or would it be one man, one vote, one time? That was the fear in Algeria. That if they win, if they reach power, they will stay in power and they will dismiss democracy altogether and hang on to power. And that is where they are. And what helped to give their commitment credibility were two other events. One, elections in Turkey and the elections in Morocco. Two countries in which Islamists ran for office and they did fairly well. In Turkey they were the third, and sorry, in Morocco they were the third largest bloc in winning seats and in Turkey they won a plurality, the biggest bloc, and they formed the government. So they said, well, here democracy is working for us and therefore we not only will embrace it, but we, knowing what happened in Algeria, knowing what happened elsewhere in Sudan and so on, we have learned our lesson. And this commitment, God help us, will be a solid, honest, and sustainable commitment. If the Islamists can join liberals like myself and secularists, in terms of commitment to democracy, I think the Arab world could witness a true democratic revolution. That is my conviction. That's what I'm working for. And that's what I hope will help us bring about. Thank you very much for listening.